Hello, valued listeners. Welcome to the Cracking Fitness Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Sean Baker. It was a very, very fun conversation that we had. This guy is the author of The Carnivore Diet. He is the host of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. He runs some pretty solid social media platforms that are not only fun to follow, but also very informative. We touch a lot of different areas in this podcast from whether cow farts are hurting the environment to how meat may just be able to heal your gut and help you to reach some of your goals. Ultimately, the idea with this podcast is really just to get as much information from as many different experts and average Joes as we can, and then it's up to you to make the decision on what you want to do. I personally have never followed a fully carnivore diet, but meat is definitely a staple in my nutrition. Uh, I try to have red meat at least three times a day, uh, but right now I currently uh, also couple that with vegetables. Almost never raw vegetables, uh, but cooked. And at this point, I also eat some carbohydrates. Um, I've always felt it kind of necessary in my workouts to have carbohydrate. But that being said, we're here to learn as much as we can. And I would not take off the table that at some point I will try a fully carnivore diet. I really appreciate the time that Dr. Sean Baker took to come on the podcast and to speak with us. If you guys have any questions about the episode, please hit me up, or you can also hop on his social media platforms and hit him up with any questions that you might have. A new little section that I want to add to the beginning of all these podcasts is just a book recommendation. So this is not a, a big one, not a big book, but it's called an official Who HQ book. It's a, it's a kid's book. It's a super easy read. You can probably read it in 20, 30 minutes, but... The whole idea is each book is who was. So who was Nikola Tesla? Who was George Washington Carver? So the book recommendation this week is who was George Washington Carver? Uh, Very simple to read. You're going to read it very quick, but you can learn a lot about uh, George Washington Carver. I like this guy. Uh, One, he was born into slavery and then became one of the first college graduates in the United States, but... More than anything, he pretty much invented everything that we do with peanuts. Um, Now, I don't know if I should be promoting uh, a book for a guy that talks about peanuts when we had Sean Baker on and he talks about all meat, but a very, very interesting life that George Washington Carver led and definitely recommend the book. Um, I wouldn't say to do it on an audio book because it's probably not worth the 15 minutes uh, for how much it would cost. But if you have kids, uh, they'll definitely be able to read it at some point. And these are the type of books that I say, yeah, just buy them. They're six bucks and just start passing them around to your friends because we can learn so much uh, that we can apply in our lives from the lives of others. Also, today's episode is brought to you by Prevail Coaching. If you have some goals as far as fitness, health, and nutrition that you would like to reach, Prevail Coaching may just be able to help you out. It is a business that is fully centered on helping you as the individual. None of the plans that members get are templated programs, meaning that we're not just going to throw out 
generic programs to you. This is something that is catered to you and to your goals. Uh, we don't accept all clients and the reason for that is we want to be honest with you. If we don't feel like we can help you, there are other people out there that can help you. So we want to make sure that it is a good, we could say symbiotic relationship. So if you're interested, uh, hit me up on social media or you can go to prevailcoaching.com. If you like today's episode, please hop on and give us a good review on iTunes. Please hit the subscribe button and also let us know if there are any other individuals that you're just dying to hear from that we can reach out and get them on the podcast. Thank you guys and have a great day. Bringing health, wellness, and fitness ideas right to your speakers with your host, Tyler Martin, learning from experts and average Joes alike. This is the Cracking Fitness Podcast. All right, Dr. Sean Baker. Man, I really appreciate you coming on and, and chatting with us today. Yeah, Tyler, my pleasure. Looking forward to a little fun conversation here. Hopefully this background, I left this background up from, I don't know, are we doing video or is this, is this video or audio only? Uh, we talk and then I just pull the audio from it. I okay. haven't, haven't made the jump to the video realm yet. That's fine. And I won't worry about it. This is from one of our other podcasts. We did, we did a Q and A and this is our background. So. Oh, cool. No, that's For awesome. For the people that don't know, I got a picture of people holding up their hands and asking questions. So. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Um, so what is your, what, what is your podcast so that everyone can learn about it and go to Yeah. It? So it's a podcast. Zach Bitter. Uh, Zach Bitter is an ultra marathon or ultra distance runner. He's a world champion. He's got the, uh, 100 mile world record, both on track and on no, the American 100 mile record in the, in the trail 100 world record for distance. He's a low carb athlete. Uh, he, he just asked me if I want to do a podcast one day, cause I've been doing a lot of athletic stuff as a, you know, as a, as a low carb now, basically no carb guy. And so we, we teamed up about a year ago. It's called the human performance outliers. Uh, it's on a bunch of different, you know, all the media, typical media outlets for that. And, uh, you know, we've had, we've had some good success. We've got a lot of people that are, that are uh, enjoying it, some great guests and, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff in health and fitness and performance and some other things, you know, agriculture. And, and, and so it's been, been fun to do having a lot of fun. We're about 120 episodes into it now. So we've been going just over a year. And so we've been, we've been cranking out the content and I think people have been enjoying it. So lots yeah. of fun. I, I know I've, I've listened to a few episodes and I've, I've personally really liked it. I, yeah, I, I learned a lot, you know, I learned a lot. We get these, you know, wonderful guests, these experts in the world get on there and you learn a little, you, you take a little bit away from each of them, you know, and it's a great way to share that. So. Yeah. I think my favorite one that I've listened to so far is with the one that you did with Stan Efforting, that two part series. Yeah, Stan's a great guy. Yeah, Stan's, you know, like I said, there's there's theory and then there's results and Stan's obviously gotten results. And so I think at the end of the day, we got to respect uh, respect people to get results. And I think that's fun. And Stan's, Stan's a smart guy. He's a bright guy and a good guy. I got to meet Stan and spent a couple hours chatting with him at a powerlifting meet where he judged me. I was deadlifting and Stan was a head referee. And so oh, that's I, had a, I hadn't had a powerlifting meet in years. It was just kind of an exhibition that Mark Bell asked me to come up there and deadlift. I was like, well, Mark, I haven't really trained for it in years, but I'll go yeah. up and play with that. And so it was, it was fun. That's awesome. Well, it's, it's been fun to see you guys collaborate. I mean, you, Mark Bell, um, his brother, which his brother's fully carnivore, right? Yeah, Chris is yeah, Chris is pretty much all on board with Carnivore. Mark Mark dabbles in and out of it. Uh, they're both they're both supportive of it. They see the 
tremendous benefit it has provided for you know literally thousands of people now and so again it's again at the end of the day it's all about results but yeah yeah chris is big into it chris is a good guy i mean he came from you know basically coming out of rehab with all kinds of health issues and you know now he's in there just killing it you know he's doing great he's you know lost tons of weight gotten really lean getting really strong he's got two two artificial hips and he's in there squatting and deadlifting like like it doesn't matter so good for him. <laughs> that's nuts which i guess from a from a you, you were a surgeon correct or are were are yeah, yeah i'm an orthopedic surgeon uh you know uh, yeah i mean I'm, i've done you know hundreds and hundreds of knee hips and shoulder replacements and I know exactly what goes into that and what what's going on. So yeah, that's just they're very much in my yeah field of uh, specialty. An outlier in those who can have a hip hip replacement surgery and then go squat five hundred pounds, or or uh, is that just you know? Yeah, no, that's that's not typical. Obviously, that's uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's definitely on the on the edge. But I, but you know, I'm fully supportive of, of I think lifting weights with with joints for most people. Yeah. replacements i think it's fine yeah well we got to have that musculature around the joint yep, exactly protects the joint so um i guess that's uh I, I jumped questions but what exactly is the the carnivore diet yeah so here's how i like to define it and you know being one of the one of the guys is kind of largely popularized it's not that i invented the diet i mean the diet probably was invented by some uh, some guy in the homo erectus lineage you know a million and a half years ago or so but really it's just a diet where we focus on animal-based nutrition nutrient dense animal-based nutrition I mean, animal-based products are far more bioavailable nutrient dense than anything else and then i then i basically tell people you know at that point you know if your focus is is, is on you know getting your nutrition from primarily meat then the rest of it is you basically either fully eliminate plants or you limit them to the to the to the degree necessary to to focus on getting you know as good of health as you can so it's basically not that you know eating a, a gram or a molecule of plant compound is going to you know end the day or or you know cause you to be kicked out of the club or you know it's it's not that i mean it's just focus on you know nutrition for many people it's strictly just meat all the time yeah. Some people will find that they, you know, they, they do better with, you know, meat with some seasoning. Some people will, you know, do some things here and there. But again, I think it, it, it gets silly to pigeonhole it into saying that you only eat meat 100% of the time. Now, if you ask me what I do, I eat pretty much only meat, you know, some eggs, some dairy, a little bit of seafood. Maybe I'll have some spices here and there, but that's about it for me. But I think to limit that to say that that's how everybody has to do it, I think that the real essence is it's not a plant-based diet. Yeah, it's it's a meat based diet and it's an animal nutrition based diet. And I think that's a, if we focus on that, um, then I think it becomes more accessible for more people. And I think that's I think that's the power. But I think if I tell people you can only eat raw meat and you have to eat you know raw liver six times a week, you're not going to get many people that are going to buy into that or yeah. even want to do that. And I wouldn't want to do it. It's not palatable. So I think you've got to you know you got to consider it. It's a meat based diet basically. Okay. Yeah, I tried the, uh, I cooked up some marrow the other day and I am all for eating meat and marrow, but I could not, I couldn't get past the texture. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, again, there, again, I don't care how nutrition, so, nutritious something is, if it's not palatable to you, then the nutritional value is zero because you're not going to eat it. So I think that's something we have to, uh, you know, contend with. And I think uh, a nice uh, ribeye steak, it's pretty damn palatable. 
you know, yeah. pretty easy. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. And I don't yeah. think, well, it's, it's natural, right? I mean, even kids, and you've posted about this before, you know, trying to get kids to eat vegetables sometimes is, it, it's pretty hard. But if I say to my kids, hey, I just cooked up some steak, they're going to eat that. They're going to have no problem with that at all. So, you know, it's probably a little bit in our DNA that we, we want to be eating meat. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we evolved to do this. I mean, that's clear. I mean, there's no question whatsoever among anthropologists that humans ate a lot of meat. There's pretty decent evidence that we are prodigious meat eaters, particularly if you look at the isotopic data. That is a pretty darn decent way to look at things. I mean, if we look at other animals and we compare their nitrogen signals, we can we can know what a, we know what a lion eats. We know what a wolf eats. And then if we can compare what human isotopic data looks like compared to that, and we see that in many cases, it's very similar, almost the same. It's pretty safe to say humans ate a lot of meat. And I think that's a clear. Now the question is how much fruit did they eat? How much nuts? How much starch did they eat? That's debatable. At what times did they do that? You know, they may find some dental scraping or some coprolites, which are fossilized, you know, feces basically. And they'll see, well, there was some fiber in there. There's some plant material, but that, you know, does not override the overwhelming evidence coming out of the, out of the, out of the isotope data, which is much more, consistent and reliable for saying what a, what a creature eats so yeah. yes humans did eat that and then you know we have a we have a reason for avoiding bitter compounds you know if you go out there and eat most plants if you go out and start eating leaves off the tree they taste very bitter and the reason is because they're poisonous and that's why we've been can, that's why we have bitter taste so we can avoid these poisonous compounds and so now we've kind of you know, vegetables didn't really exist in the, in the current form, and, and most likely humans would not have sought them out, particularly when we talk about leafy greens and stuff like that, because there's no, there's no real caloric value in that. I mean, there's none. You get almost no caloric value. Early humans didn't care about phytonutrients and this and that. They cared about getting calories and, you know, structure. And so most plants back then were very bitter, wouldn't have been edible, you know, particularly the leaves and the, and the stems and whatnot. Now we've bred some of that out of the plants. We've kind of reduced the toxicity. We've reduced the load. We haven't eliminated, but we've reduced it. So it's not as um, acutely toxic to us, but in, for many cases, it's still not very palatable. And little kids will let you know, you put a piece of broccoli in front of a little kid raw. I mean, the only time in most cases, the only way to eat those things is to, smear them in some sort of animal fat or heavenly season them. I mean, anybody that likes eating raw, uncooked broccoli, in my view, I just, I just, I just don't see it as being. Yeah. Well, just, and even, even to unlock the, the bioavailability of it, you kind of have to cook it. I mean, you're just gonna, it's just gonna go through your system. If you cook it, you're unlocking some bioavailability, but it's still not extremely bioavailable. Is that correct? Yeah, right. I mean, you know, one, just, just the very fact that it has fiber in it. Fiber binds up a lot of nutrition. And that's why a lot of people that go on a plant-based fiber-rich diet, they lose weight because they just lose nutrition. They're not absorbing calories. They're not absorbing nutrients. And some people, that's a good thing. I'm not absorbing. But I would argue that, no, you need to eat for a reason. You're designed to take in nutrients. Now, you're not, you're not supposed to be taking in all this garbage and this sugary, high-calorie stuff, you know, seed oil stuff that we've, we've turned our modern food, yeah. food system in. But you need to be efficient at absorbing the nutrition that you ingest and that's why it's important yes um uh you know there are a lot of compounds in plants you know oxalates uh, uh phytic acid you know fiber you know these are all anti-nutrients that prevent the absorption of nutrition and therefore eating a lot of that those foods makes our nutritional requirements higher you just have to eat more food to get that and yes many times uh the uh, compounds in plants are not in the bioavailable form that we need 
for, for our human systems. You know, vitamin A is a very good example. You know, we talk about beta carotene. Well, beta carotene we can't use. We have to have retinol. So we have to convert that first. And many people are very poor at converting retinol. And maybe one of the reasons that a lot of vegans that go on a diet fail very quickly. Some people last longer. Maybe they have better retinol, carotene to retinol conversion capacity. Or other vegans will try it for a month or two and they're like, I just feel awful. Yeah. So I think there's some differences there. But clearly, plant-based nutrition is far, far inferior to animal-based nutrition when it comes to appropriateness of the nutrients, the bioavailability, the absorbability, and the digestibility. So anthropologically and historically, we know, we know this. We know what our ancestors ate. So what has created this, this firestorm of people believing that we have to have plant-based nutrition and it's important to have fiber. I mean, one of the, one of the questions from the listeners were, uh, you know, th- your thoughts on micronutrients and fiber. And I mean, because it's based people like, they're like, Hey, yeah. I got my fiber. I got to get my micros. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, what I would say is I don't think we know unequivocally what we ate evolutionarily. I know we didn't eat. We weren't eating, you know, the processed food that we're eating today. We can clearly say that. Absolutely. We know that certain things weren't available. We know that modern fruits and vegetables weren't available to us back then. So we could say we probably weren't eating those things. You know, there were some versions of certain things. We know that certain plants like nuts and seeds without heavily processing, they're very toxic to us and they'll kill us. You know, if you eat a handful of raw cashews, you'll be dead. You eat a, you eat a handful of, uh, you know, kidney beans raw, you're dead. You know, a lot of cassava will kill you. And so we, until we develop those processing techniques, fermentation, sprouting, soaking, you know, those things would have been very toxic to us. So we probably didn't need a lot of those things, you know, but we are asking about micronutrients and fiber. Fiber is not a requirement. It is not an essential requirement. You will not die without fiber. If we talk about what is essential for human beings, we have essential amino acids, we have essential fats, we have minerals, and we have vitamins. That's it. Anything else beyond that is non-essential. Now, there is an RDA for fiber. There are recommended doses for fiber. That is based on epidemiologic studies. That is based upon supposed benefits, but only in the context of a standard American diet for the most part. You know, if you are eating a garbage-based diet, and most of Americans do, then fiber probably has a benefit in that situation, but it is not essential. You can live without fiber. I've not had fiber in my diet in almost three years. I am not dead, therefore it is not essential. In fact, there are numerous studies that show that fiber is actually potentially problematic in different conditions, things like chronic constipation. It doesn't seem to help in many issues. There are some things where maybe it will help mitigate a glucose response, you know, eating an apple versus drinking apple juice. Yes, the fiber will limit your glucose excursion. However, if you're not taking in a bunch of glucose in your diet, you don't need that. You know, it has almost no impact on blood pressure. It might help with satiety for some people. Uh, That may be beneficial. But again, eating a nutrient-dense diet also has a significant satiety effect. It may help benefit lowering cholesterol. Lowering cholesterol in all people is likely not beneficial. I think the evidence is becoming more and more compelling to show that certain situations, elevated cholesterol is fine. And so I don't think the fiber is definitely necessary. When it talks about micronutrients, it's the same thing we already talked about. You can get every single micronutrient you need from an animal. Now we can say, we can make the argument of the RDA, and then you have to start saying, well, if I want to eat enough vitamin C, I have to eat more liver. If I want to eat enough vitamin K, I got to maybe eat some more dairy. 
uh, you know, there, there are different things you can do within the animal spectrum to get your RDA. However, the RDA is probably not applicable to people on a meat-based diet, simply because of the fact that it was derived looking at population seeding, fiber-rich, grain-rich, carbohydrate-rich diet. All of those things impair or increase the requirements for uh, micronutrient absorption or micronutrient requirements. And so that's the deal there. I mean, I am, you know, myself and, and thousands upon thousands of other people have been doing this for a long time, including up to 20 or even 50 years, are not developing micronutrient deficiencies. In fact, I'm thriving, still breaking, you know, performing at a world-class level, despite being in my 50s, yeah. um, without, without any plants. So I think that argument is based on faulty assumptions and data derived from people eating, you know, you know grain-based diet. So are, are these RDA values coming from epidemiological studies then? Is that no, there's a whole, there's a, there's a host of ways they, 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 they develop the RDAs. Sometimes they'll test a couple people and just do that and they'll determine it based on that. They're based on population surveys where they'll look at a population and say, which percentage, which, who are the people in this population that get this particular disease and what were they eating? Um, you know, these are at best very good, sorry, at best very weak estimates of what we need even the, the, the people that study the RDAs will concede that this is basically just a consensus of expert opinion, which is considered among the lowest level of evidence possible. There's not like good randomized control trials to show us what the RDA should be. So it's basically kind of a guess. And this is kind of sad because much of the entire field of, 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 of nutrition is based on these RDAs, which are at best a guess. And so you've got this whole uh, you know, field whose very foundations are completely, you know, completely weak. So I have a, I have a tough time when I hear people say, well, you know, plant-based is the only evidence-based diet, or they talk about evidence-based medicine. So I'm a, I'm a critical care paramedic, um, like a flight paramedic certification. So obviously not even close to the level that, that you're at as far as education. But one thing that I have noticed over the last 10 years of doing it, is uh, whatever's a, whatever study and, and drug we're giving today, it's probably going to be different in uh, five or 10 years, or at least it will have changed because the data changes. Um, sorry, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know they, they talk about, you know, it's the only evidence base. That's absolutely garbage. I mean, that's yeah, that, I it, it supports their, their, their ideology. I mean, they're ideologically driven. They, they discount any evidence that, that disagrees with their you know, their, their animal rights views. I mean, it's basically animal rights and it's propped up by, uh, currently it's being propped up and pushed by processed food companies because they, they see a large windfall in profits for, you know, having people, people uh, select plant-based products. I mean, they, they promote plant-based, but really that means cheap, cheap ingredients with high profit value. So anytime I see something with plant protein or plant-based, I think cheap and profitable. And there's a huge, huge, financial push for this. We can just look at the Beyond Meat Company, which just yeah, IPO. You know, I think they're valued at, I can't remember what it is now, a couple couple billion dollars right now. And uh, that's where it is. There, there's these people that want, that have an agenda and it's to make money and it's not about your health. And it, the, the, they're willing to fund studies that, that are favorable to their, to their products. They're willing to buy media. They're willing to, to, to spend the money to get you to buy their product. And it's no surprise. It's what Procter & Gamble did in the 1920s when they bought the American Heart Association by 
donating a million dollars to, to have everybody promote, to have them promote Crisco in yeah. the American diet. And we're just seeing the same thing over and over again. So how do we sift through those, those poor studies? Well, I don't know that you need to. I mean, you know, there are literally, I mean, half a million or more studies on nutrition out there. You're never going to read all those studies and you can find, I, you know, I can, I can very quickly, and I do it all the time. I can find a study to support any position I want, right? It's very easy to do. What you've got to do is basically take matters in your own mind, in your own hands and assess what diet does to you. Be very objective about it. You know, measure what's important to you. I mean, I can tell you what I think is important, but I think you just have to say, look, uh, it's too confusing. There's too many conflicts of interest here. There is serious, serious problems with the way our research is done. There are serious limitations in what we can know. And if we accept that, then we have to say, let's be objective with ourselves. What is the most effective way for me to assess how nutrition impacts my own health? Well, it starts with making things simple. Now, you can go on a completely plant-based diet and say, I cut out all meat, dairy, eggs, whatever, see how I do, okay? You know, but if you, if you cut out junk food and you cut out sugar and you cut out seed oils at the same time, you're not really simplifying that process. And so I think you have to say cut out one thing or cut out everything. And I think those are your two options. You know, like I said, if you only cut out meat and continue eating the Twinkies and the, and the, and the candy bars and your health doesn't improve, well, what does that mean? Is plant-based better? Or if you say, I'm going to go only meat and cut out all the other garbage and your health dramatically improves, what does that say? You know, and I think that's how you have to start to look at things. And then what do you measure? You know, I think, and as a physician who's drawn and, and looked at thousands upon a lot, thousands of labs and x-rays and MRIs, I really think that, you know, you, you, you have a big, better tool at your disposal just in the mirror. How am I feeling? How do I, how do I feel when I get up in the morning? How do I sleep? What's my body composition like? What's my digestion like? What's my mental health like? What's my mood like? What's my joint health like? What's my uh, sexual function like? Those things are true indicators of health. You know, there are some, some long-term studies. You can get a coronary artery calcium scan if you're older. You get a carotid artery scan that might show some, some stuff that's still a little bit transient. Yeah. We have an over-reliance on a blood test, we got to remember, a blood test changes every hour throughout the day, every week. And so going in there and getting your blood drawn, everybody talks about my blood work, my blood work, or you get my blood work. Yeah. Don't put too much faith in that. If you're acutely sick, it's very help helpful to know what's going on. It can show you something that's very important. For most chronic conditions, it may not be that helpful. I mean, we, we have to be very uh, cognizant of the fact that you have to understand what's going on clinically as you interpret blood results. You have to realize that many, many things uh, affect your day-to-day -day blood lab. And, it's, and it can be how much sleep you got, what you ate last, what time you got up, uh, what time of day it is. There's incredible diurnal variation in labs. Anytime somebody shows you a lab value, one thing you should do is look up the diurnal variability. Vitamin D. Most people are worried about vitamin D. Low vitamin D maybe is, is associated with a lot of medical problems. Now, if you get your vitamin D taken at 7 a.m., it may be 30% lower than if you got it taken at 11 a.m. So yeah. just knowing those sort of things, you, you know, you have to sort of, you know, keep in the back of your mind that blood tests are not the be-all and end-all of what your health's doing. Which I guess kind of comes back to the studies, you know, how things change or you can find a study for anything. Um, 
you know, cholesterol used to be, hey, we can't have high cholesterol, we can't have high cholesterol. Well, now they're not seeing that there's really that huge association with, you know, heart disease and all of that. So that makes sense. Yeah, I think the cholesterol topic is an interesting one. And there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, discussion around that these days, you know, people that are out there saying that cholesterol doesn't immediately give you a heart attack are being labeled as cholesterol deniers, you know, and, and, and you know, they try to try to lump you in a, in a category of just crazy people, flat earthers and so on and so forth. But I think the cholesterol question is very nuanced. I think we have to understand that, you know, most Americans are sick, fat, and metabolically dysfunctional. And I think that in that situation, high cholesterol probably increases your risk for cardiovascular disease. I, I think that's, that's a realistic observation. But if you're not pursuing the standard American diet, if you're not pursuing the diet that makes you inflamed, uh, you know, gives you uh, insulin problems and metabolic disease, then in that situation, it's very possible and very likely, in my view, that cholesterol, high cholesterol is probably not the issue that we think it is. And so... Um, I think that's how we have to think of cholesterol at this point, based on, you know, at least in my view. Yeah. So with that whole subject there of, of labs and blood work, um, you had mentioned glucose. We, we had a listener, um, he's a, he's a vegan, pretty hardcore vegan. And he asked about your blood tests, um, in particular testosterone, also your resting, um, not, I'm sorry, not resting, fasting glucose and insulin. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that and just kind of explain that all and how that works on a carnivore diet versus plant-based. Well, I mean, you know, I, I don't know that I want to, you know, say this is carnivore diet where that, you know, anytime you look at one particular person's lab, lab values, you can't, you extrapolate that to a whole population. I mean, it's individual. Look, I'm a world-class athlete. You, you, I mean, the average person doesn't need to be looking at my labs and making assumptions on that basically, basically. Now with regard to, um, you know, testosterone i had a i had a i had a testosterone test done immediately after an extremely challenging workout the day before um and it was low it was even below normal levels right yeah. so people say well that you've got a you've got a testosterone level of an old grandma right but you know in the meantime i'm six foot five i'm 250 pounds of lean muscle i can deadlift 500 pounds for 10 10 reps yeah backflips win rowing world championships i wake up every day with a rock hard erection you know <laughs> clinical testosterone function you know is, is important. Now, Stuart Phillips in 2018 out of McMaster's University just did a study looking at muscle building in young athletes, looking at testosterone-free, you know, bound, all, all these hormone markers, and found that testosterone level had nothing to do with muscle building capacity, uh, you know, in unsupplemented athletes. Now, we're talking about people taking drugs. It's a different story. Yeah. The biggest thing that, was, that made an effect was androgen receptor density. So if your androgen receptors were high, then your testosterone, you know, the testosterone level didn't matter. That was the thing that primarily drives uh, your capacity to build muscle. And again, we have to realize that, um, you know, and I took my testosterone a week later and it was, it was 150 points higher. And so, yeah. it's, it, it, again, it changes throughout the day. Um, and so to, to point to someone who, like me who's in my 50s and say I'm low testosterone, uh, or clinically low testosterone is just ridiculous. I mean, you know, I mean, any of these vegan vegans out there that would would come up and say that, I would, you know, basically they would pale in comparison with the amount of muscle. Even the vegan bodybuilders, the little guys that are, you know, 170 pounds or a little lean and got a little bit of muscle, 
I've got, I've got, I'm 250 pounds of muscle basically. So this is ridiculous. It's absolutely ludicrous. And to not understand uh, the daily day-to-day variation on a hormone level, remember it fluctuates every day. I mean, I talked about this years ago. I said, somebody asked me about testosterone. I said, I've never checked it. I don't care. Maybe my receptor density is higher. I remember that. I did have a Dennis Mangan on a podcast long before I'd ever draw my testosterone. So I, you know, I can probably draw it three days in a row and I'll get three widely different variations depending on how much rest I've had. So I don't really, you know, put much faith in that. If you're worried about your testosterone number rather than your ability to get it up, that's a problem. You know, you should worry about what your function is. Blood glucose is another interesting. So, so fasting glucose was high. A1C was high. And so if we look at uh, one, if you look at historical populations like Inuit who were tested in the 1920s, their, blood, their fasting blood glucose was about exactly what mine was. They suffered from no evidence whatsoever of diabetic complications. That, so, interestingly, my fasting insulin was extremely, extremely low, which is associated with very good insulin sensitivity. Now, the counter would be that you're just not making enough insulin, you're therefore a type 1 diabetic or a type 1.5 diabetic. That would mean I would be needing to inject insulin eventually and getting sick. I'm, that's not occurring. It doesn't, it, you know, it just doesn't much happen. So when we look at high-level athletes, we see this not infrequently that guys are engaging in extremely, extremely uh, demanding uh, sprint-type sports show higher than normal fasting blood glucose. We see this in Olympic athletes. We see this with elite athletes. Uh, we see this with professional basketball players. Um, and so it's athletic physiology. And if I were to not train, my glucose would drop back to normal, like almost every other carnivore dieter that, that, that does this. They end up with relatively lower glucose. Now, the one thing about glucose is we have to understand that is, it, it is the most important thing to probably look at is the, um, the fluctuations in glucose. So if you have steady glucose numbers, that is far more important and more valuable then if you have low glucose in the morning, but it goes way up and down all the time with your meals. And that's what we typically see with people with diabetes. They have wildly unstable glucose numbers. My numbers are rock stable. I mean, after I eat, they even go down sometimes. And so, I mean, that's just, uh, that's just a poor understanding of human physiology. And, it's, it, and it, that, that goes to even many physicians. They don't understand that diabetes is really probably more of an insulin-related problem then it is a glucose problem. Glucose is a marker, just like cholesterol can be a marker. It can go up and down for different reasons, but stability is, is probably more important. So um, I have zero evidence of any diabetic pathophysiology, you know, in, in anything clinically going on, you know, if you look at every other marker that would, that would predict that. So that's, that's just another red herring and people that just don't under, understand physiology and they parrot what some vegan activist has said. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I've wanted to get one of those Dexcom 5 glucose, like continuous monitors, just to see, just because I'm curious. And I know the importance of that stable, you know, your stable, stable insulin. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can tell you all the people that I have seen on, uh, on a CGM, on a carnivore diet, without exception, have shown rock solid, stable blood glucose numbers. It's just like a flat line, even type 1 diabetics straight line you know particularly type one type two diabetics even particularly as they've adapted on the beginning they may be a little bit of fluctuation but as they do carnivore diet long term it is as flat and as perfect as you could ever hope for any any endocrinologist would be as happy as can be to see those cgm readings we live in a world where people just want pills 
to uh, to fix their everything. And I think a lot of times if they would just walk more and eat better, we'd get rid of most of our issues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we if we as a as a society step away from the pills, the supplements, the the you know the you know the expectations that aging means getting old. I mean, aging means getting ill rather. Uh, then then we would radically change our economy. That's the problem. There is there is a huge multi multi billion dollar pharmaceutical industry that depends upon you and I to be sick and to chronically take pills and supplements. Uh, processed food companies also are multi multi billion dollar companies which also depend on us to continue to eat their garbage that's just the way it is and there is there is billions of dollars of advertising lobbying and influence that is being directed to continue us to have us to continue to do that yeah um so taking this from the sport perspective um you're a is it world record holder on the rower? Yeah, so I've set uh, three world records on the on the indoor rower concept two. I've had world records in Highland Games. I've had world records in powerlifting. I was a professional, you know, semi-professional rugby player. I mean, I've, I've operated at high levels in a number of different sports. I was a Masters All-American track and field guy. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got a number of records. Uh, the records I set on the rowing machine were done as a strict carnivore without carbohydrates in what is a very highly glycolytic activity without you know without taking in exogenous glucose i made my own so i uh, i can perform well and as have many other athletes there are a number of athletes now high level athletes that are doing carnivore that are ex- performing extremely well yeah so i think of that as you know you're rowing i, I think of that as kind of power like a powerhouse you know because it's 500 meters right um is the ones that you were doing yeah, I mean, I just won the world championships in the 500 meter. I've got you know, the one minute record, which is about 415 meters. That's awesome. And uh, the 100 meter record, which is a pure sprint, you know, which is a yeah. sprint, which is basically the CPK system. It doesn't even get into glycolysis. Yeah. And then your, your podcast counterpart, he runs 100 mile races and he's pure carnivore. No, Zach's not pure carnivore. Zach is sometimes carnivore. He does it for most of his recovery cycle. He's low carb throughout much of his training. He does cycle up some carbohydrates during certain workouts, and he does use some carbohydrates during his races. So I think it's, it's you know Zach would be yeah. first to tell you that he doesn't do it purely, but he does do carnivore quite a bit. He does include a lot of meat. He eats a couple pounds of meat every single day, even though he's a you know relatively small guy. But he finds it to fuel his his performance needs. Uh, he's eating, you know, lots of meat, you know, and then, and then going low carb and then going zero carb in the recovery phases. Okay. So one of our listeners was curious about fueling during hit workouts. And I know this person's a, a CrossFitter and fairly high level. So they're doing multiple uh, aerobic um, CP work and glycolytic, you know, throughout the week. And so they're just curious about fueling. Yeah, and so I think you know, one you have to you have to realize there's an adaptation period, and an adaptation period may be three to six months for a lot of people for athletics. And so, I think that the two biggest things are not eating enough in general. So you got to you got to make sure you eat to, to your demand. And so you may end up eating quite a bit. Um, you know, if we look at how protein, you know, and is basically released when it comes to blood glucose, pro, glucose tends to spike around four to six hours after a meal. On a, on a protein rich meal. And so that's probably if you're timing your meals and your workouts, you know, if you're looking at glycolytic stuff, that may be of benefit. 
I find that adding electrolytes, you know, can be helpful prior to a workout, particularly uh, like salt, just like salt, sodium chloride, just to increase intravascular water. So salt water, you know, drinking, drinking a fair bit of fluid with some salt in it's going to help with that. It's going to help, you know, put more water in your muscles, which is going to help you perform better. Um, also, um, you know, you know, if you're doing two day workouts, let's say, you know, you've got a, an AM workout and then a, then a, then a PM workout. I mean, you either, you know, eat three or four hours prior to your first morning workout or eat a big meal the night before and then eat immediately or shortly after within a couple hours after your, your first workout, you know, so like you're working at 9am, maybe eat by 11, do your, your next workout at four or five and then eat a big dinner after that. That's going to help with muscle protein synthesis, glycogen restoration, because protein will help you restore glycogen through gluconeogenesis, particularly if you're on a low carbohydrate diet, particularly liver glycogen. Um, that works pretty well. Okay. That's interesting. So important to remember then just that there is that period of time where you need to adapt. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's definitely an adaptation period. Okay. Um, do you find that depending on how poor the diet was before it takes longer or shorter for that adaptation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, people coming from a ketogenic diet tend to adapt a little quicker because they're used to a fat-based metabolism. Uh, I think there's still some some adaptation things. There's some concern about oxalates because a lot of time the ketogenic diet can be a high can be a high oxalate diet, and so sometimes, um, you know, we have to taper out of oxalates to 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 avoid some issues with with oxalate kind of oxalate dumping potentially. Um, yeah, but I mean, somebody that's that's clearly dependent upon glucose and carbohydrates will have a harder time and a longer time than somebody that's not. So absolutely. There's a time difference. Okay. Um, another listener question, um, are cow farts causing global warming? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, first it's, it's, it's cow belches where the methane comes from They're they're, they're ruminants. So rather as opposed to hindgut fermenters, like, like certain primates and other animals, like, uh, uh, horses and stuff like that where the methane comes out the back end methane comes out the front end of cows now um the shorter answer is no it's not the the uh the long answer is that you know um greenhouse gas emissions and we talk when we and we, we can convert uh, methane into carbohydrate equivalents and that's how they measure greenhouse gas emissions worldwide uh from animal agriculture is about 14 percent that is based on life cycle assessment system that's involving everything that's used to make those animals, whether it's transportation, whether it's you know, the crops that are fed to them sometimes. The direct emissions from the cow actually burping is only about 5% of the world's greenhouse gases now. And it depends on what country you're in. Now in the U.S., for instance, uh, animals, cows produce about 1.9% of our greenhouse gas, so it's a tiny, tiny amount you and I live in the United States, if we were to go vegan and we were to get rid of all the cows and all the dogs and all the cats and all the horses and make all the animals disappear from the United States, the impact worldwide would be about 0.3% less greenhouse gases. So almost negligible. Okay. You know, hospitals in the United States produce, our healthcare system produces about 10% of our greenhouse gases. And so if you avoid going to the hospital by eating a meat-based diet, you're saving money there. And so it's a very nuanced conversation, but more important to the point, 
you know, most of the greenhouse gases that are produced from animals are produced in developing countries, third world countries where they have very inefficient agricultural practices. You know, the, the, the cattle herd in India is about 200 million cattle. Most of them are sick, diseased, they're very inefficient. You know, those are the things we could do to help with mitigating further greenhouse gases. Now, methane, as we've come to find out, is a very short-lived greenhouse gas. And so, although it has a approximately 25%, or sorry, 25 times higher global warming potential than carbon dioxide does, you know, over the short term, over the long term, it is so short-lived in the atmosphere relatively that it makes far less difference than carbon dioxide. So digging up fossil fuels from the ground, putting it in the atmosphere is going to cause higher amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and potentially lead to global warming. Now, of course, there are people that debate whether it has an effect at all. You know, that's a different issue. But if we just compare on based on believing that man is causing global warming, it is not cow farts. It is fossil fuels, it is transportation, it is energy sector, it is, you know, you know those things make up about 80% of our global greenhouse gases. And so that is where our attention should be. It should not be on uh, cow farts and then putting people on a nutritionally deficient diet to fix the atmosphere. We need to get away from our reliance on fossil fuels. That is a, you know, a better solution if we're going to have one. So, I mean, it, this is just a distracting uh you know, a distracting argument that takes away from the real problem. Yeah. Well, and I, I read somewhere, I don't know if it was on your social media or, or somebody else's, but like one acre of peas to do pea protein is like 400 times more water than it takes to feed a cow or to, to hydrate a cow. Yeah, I can't tell you this. I can't speak exactly on the pea protein because uh, I don't remember seeing stats on water. But I know, like, you know, if we look at almond milk, almond milk, according to the UCLA lifestyle life cycle evaluation done, which includes all the water and all the to, to feed the crops, to feed the cows, shows that almonds require about 17 times as much water uh, to produce a liter of almond milk versus a liter of cow's milk. Uh, the pea protein thing, uh, to get the, the appropriate amount of uh, essential. Uh, amino acids like leucine or lysine, uh, to get that in pea protein, it requires about five times as much land as to get the equivalent amount from, from beef. And so these people, these vegan bodybuilders are using all this pea protein are actually probably more destructive uh, to the environment. And it, and it requires all this monocropping and, and the monocropped agriculture, uh, if not done correctly. And, the, and there's some rotational. Many of the monocrops are rotated, so that may be helpful. But in general, the monocropped agriculture does cause a loss of diversity to the wildlife. It destroys the soils, requires, heavily, requires heavy pesticide, herbicide usage. Uh, and so that is a big issue. And that's probably more of an issue than uh, a cow raised on grass or at least pastured regeneratively, which is where we should be you know, directing our efforts is restoring the soil, getting a higher percentage of our cows, you know, pastured in a regenerative fashion. Okay. Do you find a difference in, I guess, your own performance and those who are dabbling in the carnivore diet with grass-fed versus non-grass-fed? Uh, no, I don't. Not for me. Uh, you know, there are, I mean, there's some people that say they feel better on grass-fed. Um, I, I don't personally. Uh, I, I want to be very honest about that. Yeah. Um, I think there's some very good reasons to support regenerative agriculture. I'm not convinced human health is one of those. Uh, but, you know, I do think we need, to, we need to push for that round. Okay. 
Um, one more question I wanted to, to ask and then, well, I guess two more questions. Um, one will just build on the other. Uh, depression and the carnivore diet. Um, I guess that's not a question. That's a statement that I would just let you talk yeah, Okay, to. yeah. So, I mean, uh, one of the – so many people, not all, but many people not, m note re remarkable improvements in mental health on a carnivore diet. And it can be depression. It can be anxiety. It can be people with bipolar disorder. There can, there's even people with schizophrenia that have noticed improvement. Um, why that is is speculative. Uh, it could be that uh, gut – disruption via things like uh, you know leaky gut gut permeability problems contribute to mental health disease I think there's decent evidence to support that and I think for many people carnivore diet improves the gut integrity uh, it may be a nutritional thing you know getting the nutrient the appropriate nutrient dense materials uh, some of the micronutrients in meat zinc uh, iron uh, carnitine is carn l-carnitine has been linked with major depressive disorders so a deficient relative deficiency in l-carnitine which many vegetarians and vegans have has been linked with major depressive disorder meat contains lots of carnitine which is directly absorbed by our body and raises our levels so that can be can be effective just having adequate fats and cholesterol again remember our brain is uh, about 25 of our body 25 percent of our body's cholesterol is devoted to our brain and so uh, those things all may have a role in, in uh, mental health. Clearly, we're seeing it. Uh, there's, probably, it's probably, there's probably numerous reasons why, why we're seeing improvements. Do you think, well, one, I find it very interesting that as processed food increases, we also have this mental health ep epidemic right now. Um, but it, it does seem to be getting worse. Do you think it could be uh, like an epigenetic issue? you know, as our parents are eating worse and we're eating worse, it just, it's kind of building up on itself. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think we're seeing that with, with metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance, but I, I don't doubt that, uh, m you know, mental health is probably also there. I mean, I think again, eating a horrible diet, that's all this processed food garbage. And I don't want to single out a plant-based diet because I think garbage junk food is, is probably the biggest issue. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, yes, there are epigen epigenetic modifications that are occurring in, on numerous things. Um, I think that uh, it does get worse from generation to generation. And uh, it, it's sad to see. I mean, these kids are in utero or, or you know, some of, their, some of their adult behaviors and, and diseases are being, you know, directed, you know, in the uterus. So it's, it is, it's probably going on for sure. So we want to combat that. We need to, we need to get our country healthy. Um, so what can people do to just the average person that's out there? So standard American diet, what can they do today right now to just start being better as far as health and nutrition? Well, I mean, the first thing you do is you have to care, you know, you got to care about your health and you've got to then, then buy into the fact that nutrition affects your health. And I think it clearly does. I think the evidence is overwhelmingly in favor that it does. And then you have to do some personal education. You know, you have to you have to invest in yourself, invest in your family. You have to educate yourself. I think you just have to change. And I don't know what it has to be. I would argue for a meat-based diet, obviously. I think that's a very, you know, successful strategy for most people. It's very easy to figure out, you know, when, if you eliminate a lot of things, you know, and, and restrict to, to one or two things, then it becomes very easy to 
figure out what other things are causing an impact on your diet. You need to evaluate what's important to you uh, from a health standpoint and lifestyle standpoint. Go from there. And, and I think that's, you know, I think step one is get yourself healthy, get your family healthy. And then you can start to, you know, if we're talking about healing the country, and then you can start to advocate, you know, for this stuff. Because sick, weak, sick, weak people do not make, you know, a, a healthy country. And I think our country is in danger of um, a lot of problems, you know, the continued violence, continued mental health disorders, continued, you know, social problems, which probably some of those originate from sick people, sick, unhealthy people. And so we need, we need healthy, strong people, um, you know, to populate the planet. And I think we'll be better off for it. Um, it's a little scary right now. There's even, you know, advocates and, and, uh, lobbyists that are just trying to force plant-based on people. And I just, I don't think that that is right. Yeah. Well, you're preaching to the choir here. Obviously there are, there, there are people that think we have to do that to save the planet. Uh, they are misguided in my view. Uh, it's going to come back. If we ever go down that route, it's going to go back to bite a lot of people. I think it's going to set us up for, a whole bunch of miserable humans that are sick, you know, and uh, it plays right into the hands of people that want to profit from that stuff. And I think, you know, smart people will realize that that's just not the way to go. And hopefully more of us will spread the message. Uh, you know, I think there is a push for uh, social media censorship for people that are not uh, towing the line with the plant-based message. Um, and we're seeing that. And, and I think we have to, all of us stand up and, you know, convert as many possible people as possible, get the, get the message out there that uh, plant-based is not necessarily the way to go. And it's certainly a potential to cause a lot of harm and damage. Yeah. That's a depressing subject. We just need to remember freedom of speech is the, the first amendment. So <laughs> we, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, freedom of speech, sure. I mean, that's, that's one of the founding principles of the, of the, of the United States. And uh, we, we enjoy this. Not every country enjoys freedom of speech. We need to cherish it, protect it. And, you know, I mean, unfortunately, you know, speaking on a social media platform doesn't guarantee you freedom of speech. They're not, they're, not, they're, they're not the United States government. And so there is some potential for that. And so there may be migrations to alternate platforms, you know, from – Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and some of these other places at uh, Facebook that, that that might find that they want to wield their influence and, you know, mold people to believe what they want them to believe. And so I think that's, that is a little bit, a little bit of a scary thought. Yeah. Well, one thing that I appreciate about what you've done and what you're doing is just that you're willing to go a little bit against the grain. I mean, the world right now is not, you know, they're not out there saying, let's advocate for a carnivore based diet, you know, meat based diet there for the, it seems like for the most part, there's a lot out there that's advocating for the plant based. So I just appreciate your willingness to go against the grain a little bit. And uh, we all need to be open to that. You know, anyone who's listening that is plant based, um, they can do whatever they want. I don't, I don't care what people do. I mean, if that's what they want to do, then that's what they want to do. But at the same time, they've got to be open to listening to other things. And if if they're not, then they can't be mad at what I do. Well, I mean, they'll say it's for the greater good, you know, greater good. You just need to eat our eat, eat uh, fake food and plants uh, to save the planet. And I mean, that's what they believe. I mean, they, they, 
they are literally brainwashed into believing this stuff. And, uh, uh, yeah, you're right. I, you know, if you want to eat that stuff, good, you know, that's fine. I, you know, I, I don't think you're very wise if you do that, but to, to restrict what I have access to eat or limit what I have access to eat or try to attempt to tax or restrict or shame me. I mean, there's people out there that working for the United Nations that want to put meat eaters out, out on the balcony with the smokers. So you shouldn't yeah. even be allowed in a restaurant if you eat meat, which is, you know, again, <laughs> I don't think we should tolerate that. No, I'm right there with you. Well, uh, I know you're a busy guy and uh, you're out there doing a lot of good things and I, I appreciate it, but I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, I really appreciate all the time you have taken with us. I, I think anyone who listens, if they can just kind of have an open mind about this stuff and be able to experiment a little bit with their, their selves and um, not get so caught up on the, the data and the research that may be faulty and, and, and yeah, faulty data and research, then we'll all, we'll all be in a better place. Um, yeah, I agree. Thanks for having me on, Tyler. I appreciate the opportunity to, to, to chat and spread my, my little craziness. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I appreciate Thanks. it. Where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on Instagram, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Baker, B-A-K-R, 1967. They can find me on Twitter at SBakerMD. They can find me on my YouTube channel, which is just Sean Baker. They can find me, uh, where else? World Carnivore Tribe Facebook group. I just started an account on Gab, which is kind of a crazy social network uh, that allows for unlimited, unlimited free speech. Some people criticize it because there's some crazy neo-Nazis and stuff on there. But again, it's, it's free speech. I think that, uh, you know, the, 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 the problem with free speech is you got to give free speech to assholes. And so, yeah. I mean, you're either going to have it or you're not. And so uh, on that one, I'm under Sean Baker, MD. Sean-Baker.com is a website. You can check out meatheels.com. We are going to be launching animal-based-nutrition-network.com very shortly, which will be a a, a wide-ranging place for people that are in favor of eating meat or animal-based nutrition, which will include links to physicians, uh, recipes, uh, you know, you know, uh, information, data, research, uh, how you can become involved politically. Uh, you know, health coaching, fitness stuff, um, you know, producers that are producing meat ranchers, um, even maybe a, even, a, even a dating site. So we've got that coming down the pike. So those, those are all going to be fun things that it's going to be coming out very, very, very soon. Awesome. A place that meatheads can meet and produce more little meatheads. That's like right. It. We need more meatheads in the world. <laughs> little meat kids. Perfect, man. All right. Thank you so much, That's Tom. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Have a great day. Okay. We'll see ya.